turn to Matthew chapter 16, but let your eyes go up to the screen. And let me introduce you to a new friend of mine. Thank you for praying for me. Uh, I asked you last week at the end of the services to pray for me. I got on a plane, headed out of Reagan last Sunday night late, got to St. Louis. A great friend there who directs a a camp for teenagers, a bunch of Bible churches in the greater St. Louis area, get on buses on Monday morning, drive down towards the Ozarks, and there they rent a a campground, and I was their Bible speaker. This is the fourth time I've been out there in about almost a 20-year window. Uh, They rotate some speakers through, and uh, one of the things that... uh, Uh, that they do is every morning at 6.30 they have staff devotions and they ask the speaker to be there and that way they can hear what we're planning for the day. I spoke every morning and every evening and I spoke a couple of cabin devotions and I spoke at staff devotions and I spoke at an extra seminar for kids on how to prepare Bible lessons. I had three young men sign up for that. I thought that was pretty good to be at camp and then sign up for a seminar on how to prepare a Bible lesson and sit at a table at camp when you could be swimming or whatever. And uh, so I spoke 13 times from Monday night till yesterday morning and then uh, sat in the Charlotte airport last night and American Airlines did what they do best and delayed our flight and delayed our flight and delayed our flight. And so it was about 1 a.m. when I pulled in the driveway this morning, but it is good to be home. You know that feeling, don't you? Well, every morning at, at staff devotions, um, I looked across the room. See, they also, this same group of Bible churches, this campground's really big. They have an elementary camp going at the same time. And I didn't have anything to do with that. But the staff combined in the morning for prayer time and for, for staff meeting. And I would look across at the staff and I saw this old guy over there. And his name is Troy. I don't know his last name. I need to find out. And I ran over to him right before we left yesterday morning, and I said, Troy, I'd love to have my picture taken with you. This guy is my new hero. He is 86 years old, and he was a counselor in the fourth and fifth grade boys' cabin all week long. And uh, chasing those guys around, he is sharp as a tack. And uh, I just thought that was great that he was 86. I think that he's my new role model. Um, they were a bunch of his boys were running on ahead of him, and there's like this this retaining wall of of blocks, and the boys all you know they dove over the benches about two and a half feet high, running. Oh, Troy runs up to the wall, looks, and then he jumped and followed the boys. At 86 years old, I just think that is fantastic. And I wanted to introduce Troy to you, and I wanted to thank you for praying for me that uh, we've returned home safely and effective week of ministry. Boy, I'll tell you what. Uh, just some of those young people, the homes in which they live and the messes that their parents have made of life is absolutely incredible. And they love camp uh, because they have just a release from all of the garbage going on at home. And then there was a lot of good Bible church kids there from great, the privilege of having Christian parents and good solid homes. But they were so responsive to the word of God. And I attribute a lot of that to your prayers Uh, in supporting me. Well, I wanted to point out Troy because that guy's heart is huge for Christ and huge for people. As we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 16, we go to the exact opposite end of the spectrum. And there we find men with absolute hard hearts and no heart for Christ. 
They're the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You might want to reach for your sermon notes that are in your bulletin. I think again this week it would be helpful to let your eyes track and fill in some of the blanks with our message today as we unfold the next 12 verses of chapter 16 of Matthew. Let me read our text, can we please? And uh, just pay attention to your copy of God's Word. And let's read together Matthew 16, 1 through 12. You listen and I'll read. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, that would be Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them. Now right here, in some of your Bibles, it says the first thing Jesus said back was, you hypocrites. If you have a King James Bible or a New King James, it probably says that. If you're reading an NIV, an ESV, as I'm reading, the English Standard Version or a New American Standard Version, it doesn't. It leaves out the word hypocrites, and it, it has to do with, with the, the manuscripts that they resourced for it, and, and it's a, an interpretive challenge there. And so the word hypocrite is left out. But it could very well apply right there to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You hypocrites. You act like you're interested in spiritual things, but really you're not. You know anybody like that? That's a hypocrite. Somebody who on the outside appears to be one thing, but on the inside they're another thing. We're going to find out later in Matthew as Jesus really clashes with the Pharisees at the end of his life. That on the inside, he tells them they're like whited sepulchers, clean on the outside, but full of dead bones on the inside. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, you hypocrites, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and he departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Okay, so they get in a boat, they get in the Sea of Galilee, and they head to angle across to another shore. Typical of a bunch of men, they realized they didn't have any food. We forgot the bread. This is the kind of bread that you make sandwiches out of that he's talking about. Then Jesus says, okay, knowing what they're thinking about and discussing, Jesus, I think, still rolling with the conversation and encounter with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, says, without any introduction, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Leaven was, was bread without yeast in it. Okay? Leaven is yeast, okay, and they ate unleavened bread, so they knew when Jesus referenced leaven, it would be bread, and watch out for, for bread with leaven in it. The, the disciples think Jesus is reminding them, make sure you eat unleavened bread. Okay, where that came from, by the way, that Jews would eat unleavened bread is a reminder, clear back to the Exodus, that when they came out of Egypt, they were to leave the old ways behind. You know in your Bible, Egypt is always a symbol of the old ways without Christ. And that Canaan or the promised land is always a symbol of our newness of life in Christ. So it's an Old Testament picture. It really happened. They really did come out of Egypt. They really were enslaved in Egypt for all those 400 plus years. And they really did leave and when they left, they were to eat leavened bread from then on. And it was to be a continual reminder that they had an old life in Egypt, but now they had a new life 
following God in the promised land with his blessing. And so that's the purpose of eating unleavened bread. And we do that even today with our communion. We serve unleavened hard bread that's broken. Leaven in scripture is always a picture of sin in our lives. We're to remove the leaven. So the disciples think that Jesus thinks that they might have got some bread off those Pharisees and Sadducees before they left. And he's reminding them, don't eat leavened bread. Well, they missed the whole point. Let's continue reading. I've interrupted our reading. Let's pick it up back at verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Jesus is upset that we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith. That's like the repeated line to the disciples, isn't it? Oh, you of little faith. We don't want to admit it, but we can really identify with that, can't we? Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Who cares whether you brought bread? We can always produce bread. How is it that you fail to understand, verse 11, that I did not speak about bread that you make sandwiches out of? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread that you make sandwiches out of, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It was kind of an interesting passage. Let's break it down. The first thing I want you to see, number one on your sermon notes, is that the Pharisees and Sadducees are on the attack. And I put in parentheses again. They were regularly after Jesus, weren't they? And these encounters are, are, are just, these skirmishes are intense and they're verbal battles. And this time we see that it was, first bullet point, it was a rigged encounter. Let's let our eyes go to verse one. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. Okay, so the first thing that should make it suspect is that it's Pharisees and Sadducees together. Pharisees and Sadducees didn't like each other. They didn't believe the same thing. They were from two different kinds of camps. Sadducees were the elitist of the elite. They were very, very wealthy. They controlled much of the money. Uh, they, they did not believe in the spirit world. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe that God was a spirit. They did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in a resurrection of the body. And, and so they were in one theological camp as well as a social, societal class. The Pharisees, they also were involved in ruling. You've got to remember that the religious leaders of this day in the, the Jewish community and around, in and around Israel of this day, that they were under Roman rule, but these Jewish leaders connived with them and the Romans used these religious leaders to control the people. And that's why when it comes time for the crucifixion that the, that the Roman authorities dealt with and, and, the, and, and likewise the Pharisees and the, the, the Sanhedrin is what I was trying to say. They dealt with the Roman officials and they were able to manipulate and, and connive to get Barabbas released and Jesus crucified. So they were in bed together with the government. The Sadducees were involved in that, but they were like the elitists. The rich snob snob kind of religious people, very wealthy. And then, like I said, they had no belief in the spirit world. The Pharisees, on the other hand, did believe in the resurrection. 
They were more of a common class of people. They were a larger group of people. And they were the ones that were big on Moses and Abraham. And they kept the law. And they're the ones that wrote their books of rules. And thick books of rules. And the keeping of laws. Pharisees and Sadducees didn't like each other. In the book of Acts, we have that illustrated when the Apostle Paul goes to court before them, when they pull them in, and they pull him in to prosecute him. And one of the things he does, I think, it doesn't show in the text unless you really imagine it, but Paul, with a sparkle in his eye, a twinkle in his eye, in front of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are trying to prosecute him, brings up the argument of afterlife and the resurrection. And it says in the text, and so they started fighting among themselves. It's like the Apostle Paul wanted to take a break from the trial. And so he throws this out on the floor and like a hunk of red meat among dogs. They can't resist fighting over their doctrinal differences. These guys really don't like each other at all. Pharisees and Sadducees are jealous of each other. They don't like each other. They don't believe the same things. And so the very first thing you see, first bullet point, is this is rigged. This is, this is rigged. This is connived. The, the thing that unites them, and this happens, doesn't it? Enemies unite over a common enemy. And that's what they're doing. The second thing I want you to see is that this is a repeated occurrence. It's a repeated occurrence. So Pharisees and Sadducees came, and they came to test him. That's the other clue that it's rigged. They aren't looking for real information. They're simply looking to come and embarrass Jesus, to try to humiliate him, because they do not believe that he's the Messiah. He's right in front of their face, and they don't see all of the signs. So it's not only rigged, but it is a repeated occurrence. They've done this. Um, if you turn back to chapter 12, verses 38 to 41, you'll recall this account, occurrence, chapter 12 of Matthew 38 to 41. Look what it says. This is almost identical wording, but it's a different occasion. Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We're so interested in learning about you, Jesus. Would you give us a sign? And, and nothing could be further from the truth. And that's why they're called hypocrites. And he answers them, verse 39, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it, given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what is that? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so forth. Back to chapter 16. This is not the first time this has happened. These guys are always trying to trip up Jesus. Then in the Matthew 12 occurrence that we just read, it was Pharisees and scribes. In Matthew 16, now it's Pharisees with Sadducees. I take it in both occurrences, the Pharisees were the leaders, they were the pit bulls, and the others kind of joined in to supplement the ranks. There they are. It's rigged. It's repeated. Not only that, thirdly, it is ridiculous. Flip the page back just to chapter uh, 15, still in 15, uh, the chapter before chapter 16, verse 29. That's a good bit of helpful information, isn't it? Chapter 15 is the chapter before chapter 16. Did you hear what I just said? You write that in your notes, okay? Chapter 15, verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and he sat down there and a great crowd came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd marveled or wondered at him. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, 
and they glorified the God of Israel. You know that the Pharisees and Sadducees had been witnessing all of this. How much of a sign do you need? What kind of a sign do you wish you could get? Introductory question on our notes. What kind of sign would it take to prove to you that Jesus is the Christ? Is there really any sign that you would receive? Or are you like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who say, give us a sign so we can know who you are. They didn't believe for one second and they refused to believe. And that's um, the idea of the fourth bullet point is that it would be rejected even if he did give a sign. Even if he did give a sign, it would be rejected. They were disingenuous and they were determined in their unbelief. They were determined in their unbelief. You ever been around people who are determined unbelievers? Oh, man. They love to argue. They love to to spout off about all their ideas and why they think things are the way they are. And when you open God's Word and you begin to show them the truths of the Word, it, it makes no difference to them. And furthermore, they're not seeking truth any more than the Pharisees or the Sadducees are seeking truth. And they are actually determined to not believe. There is a quote from Voltaire, a a famous atheist of the past, that goes something like this, has the idea, he said, even if the streets were filled with miracles, I would still decide not to believe my eyes. And the Pharisees are like this. They don't want to believe it. They don't want anything to do with it. They rejected anything that came about. As a, I mean, they're watch, you're watching the blind to see. This is the Lord Jesus who can smear some, take some spit and put it in the dirt. And smear it on a guy who was born blind. 30 plus years, born and living blind. And he goes down to the pool, washes it off, and he can see. That's a pretty good sign, I would say. That this is not a normal human. That this is the master of the universe. This is the Lord Jesus who lives outside the laws of the universe. He does not need physical laws to explain what he does. He is the source of all physical laws. You don't need to defend him. He defends himself. Well, they would have been rejected. They were disingenuous and determined in their unbelief. So as we move on in our passage, we move from the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are under attack again to number two in our outline to Jesus. We see Jesus' response to them in verse two, uh, verse three. And once again, we can say uh, this is, of course, the... um, Uh, The most unnecessary thing to say that I'm going to say this morning, but Jesus gave the perfect response. I mean, and I don't say it, but of course, Jesus could only give a perfect response. But, you know, every time he encounters these guys and, and they're talking, you just think to yourself, that was the perfect response for those guys. They deserve that. That was just right. And so... Once again, Jesus comes back with the perfect response. Bullet point number one is that it was clever. Um, They say to him, show us a sign from heaven. Show us a sign from heaven. And so Jesus says to them, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in morning, sailor take warning. There you go. There's your sign. Did you know that was in the Bible, by the way? There it is. Did you know that Jesus knew that little quote? There it is. You know, if the sky's red at night in the evening, it's going to be fair weather in the morning. You know that, right? Although I've been told by Keith Baker, one of our resident hunters and fishermen, he said it doesn't always work. And he's been wet and cold to be 
for, to prove it. But, you know, in the evening, as the sun sets, then the sky turns beautiful. I don't know if that's a sunset or a sunrise on our screen. But the idea is that, that Jesus is saying to them, Look, you can look at the atmosphere and you can tell when the sun is setting, the condition of the atmosphere makes it glow red to our eyes. And that usually means that there's good weather coming through the night and in the morning. But in the morning when you watch the sunrise, the condition of the atmosphere is such that in a morning sunrise that turns red, it's usually the atmospheric conditions that it's going to be a rainy day. He's saying, you can see the sky here, but you can't see sign. You're blinder than a bat. You want a sign from heaven, you watch the skies and you think you know a lot, but you're blind. It was a clever response. This was evidently a well-known saying. I think it was also a condemning response. It was a condemning response in, in the King James and New King James, as I referenced already. His response to them was when he answered them, you hypocrites. When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. In other words, the king of life, the Messiah that you've memorized about in your Old Testament is standing right in front of you. According to Isaiah's prophecy, he's healing the lame, making the blind to see. He's even raising the dead on occasion. This was all prophesied. It's all right here. What more sign do you need? You're blind as a bat. You refuse to believe. And he condemns them. You're nothing but hypocrites. You really do not want a sign. You really don't want to prove that I'm the Messiah. What you want to do is you want to humiliate me. And he says again, like we quoted in 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. What's he talking about? As Jonah was swallowed in the belly of the fish, three days in the sea, spit up on dry ground like a resurrection, right? It's a picture. Jonah in the belly of the great fish, which really happened. Jesus quotes it here. Jesus believed that it really happened. I'm not embarrassed to believe something that Jesus believed. Are you? And Jesus wants to give a, a, a point of reference. You remember the prophet Jonah? Remember that he was swallowed by a fish? And he's not talking about an imaginary, you know, just a word picture. He's talking about something that he believed really happened. That is a picture of the one sign that you're going to get, that you either believe it or you don't believe it. And it's the Son of Man went to the cross, bore our sin on the cross, shed his blood for the cross. They buried him in the ground. And three days later, like Jonah came out of the belly of the fish, the Son of Man comes out of the belly of the earth alive. That's the sign you're going to get, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it says there that through the power of the Holy Spirit with great authority, God raised Jesus up from the dead to prove that he was truth. The resurrection is the linchpin doctrine of Christianity. Apart from that truth, we have no the, the authenticating, that's the authenticating sign, the sign of Jonah. Jesus did all those signs and wonders to prove his deity, that he lived outside the laws of the universe, but the sign of Jonah. And they don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. It's right in front of them. And so it's a condemning statement that he makes. And the third bullet point is that it was consistent. It was a consistent answer is what I mean. We've already looked at chapter 12 and exactly what he said. 
So it was repeated and it was consistent. Those two points under second bullet point under number one and the third bullet point under number two are a little bit redundant, actually. Thirdly, we now have the disciples. So they have this encounter, Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then they leave. The disciples then, it just says they, they evidently got in a boat. They left. They reached the other side. And we now have the disciples, and they're missing the point once again. <laughs> they think they know what's going on, and they really don't. I can kind of relate to that, can't you? It's embarrassing, isn't it? We should know more than we know. It's right in front of our face. It's right here in the Word. When the disciples reached the other side, verse 5, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, Oh, we brought no bread. And he doesn't want us to have... So we have the case of the forgotten bread, bullet point number one under three. Uh, They were worried about things that just didn't matter. And it comes through in Jesus' response, doesn't it? So the forgotten bread is the issue that the disciples are focused upon. We don't have any food. We don't have any bread. And Jesus just pipes up and says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We've already talked about the fact that it's a reference to a kind of bread. But I think Jesus is, a, is, is poking them on the, in the eye a little bit when he ends up reminding them not only that he can make bread out of nothing, but he's like, when he says in verse 8, but Jesus, aware of them thinking that this was bread that you make sandwiches out of, says to them, oh, you of little faith. Now, it took me a while to get that. Why did Jesus say, because they misunderstood his comment, why did Jesus say to the disciples, oh, you of little faith? It is one of his favorite things to say to them, and, and they deserve it, as do we most days. But what is it? Let's flip over to Matthew chapter uh, 6, and let's remind ourselves of what Jesus had been teaching his disciples. This is the Sermon on the Mount that we've studied together. Look at verse 25. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture that many of you know very well and read regularly, um, because it's about anxiety. But I think that the reason that Jesus looked at the disciples and said, Oh, you of little faith is because they're worried about not having bread to eat. Jesus is going to remind them that he doesn't need, they, you know, look, we just fed all these thousands of people out of nothing. Why are you worried about bringing them lunch with you? But this is what Jesus had been teaching them, and I have to believe that this was a repeated teaching. Don't you think that Jesus repeated his teaching over and over and over? He knows us. He knows we don't get it the first time. And look what he taught them. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus said, Sermon on the Mount, verse 25 of Matthew 6, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then he illustrates it. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he goes from the lesser to the greater in his logical sequence. If he feeds the birds of the air and if your heavenly father feeds them and they don't have storehouses, how much more, how much more will he feed you? I think that when Jesus looks at them back to chapter 16, I think when they're getting out of the boat and they're like, wow, we didn't bring our bread. And he said, remember the leaven. Don't don't forget the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch it. Watch out for it. They're like, oh, he, he's bothered that we didn't bring bread. Or he thought we brought, he thinks we might have purchased uh, um, leavened bread. And he wants to remind us to only eat leaven, unleavened bread. And yeah, 
I think when he looks at them and says, oh, you of little faith, it's directly to the reality that I've been teaching you to stop worrying about what you're going to have for your next meal, guys. Your heavenly Father will feed you, oh, you of little faith. It is hard for us when the refrigerator is getting empty, isn't it? When there's not enough money at the end of the month. And aren't we exactly like the disciples? Don't we deserve to have our Lord look at us and say at the end of the month when we're all meltdown mode, I'll feed you. I'll take care of you. Your heavenly Father feeds the birds of the air. How much more will He take care of you, O you of little faith? I think that's exactly what he's talking about. It was a forgotten promise, bullet point number two under number three. Now to wrap up, Jesus, though, then enters into some teaching and some warning, which he always does, taking the moment. He's the master teacher, and he always finds the teachable moment, doesn't he? Our Lord does. Let's, let's read it once again. Um, and so... Verse 8, but Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? You know, unspoken. Didn't I tell you my, my father will feed you like he feeds the birds? Do you not yet perceive? Then he goes on. Do you not yet perceive? Don't you understand? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Verse 10, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? And we've already discussed that. How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? How can you guys be so thick-headed that you think I'm talking about regular bread? What's wrong with you guys? And so they have forgotten his provision. They have forgotten provision of the Lord already. But finally they get it. Look what it says. How is it, verse 11, that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Luke chapter 12, verse 1 tells us that the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. And Jesus is warning them not to be hypocrites like them. And then they understand. They understood. Verse 12. Oh, I get it now. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread. It was not a reminder to keep eating unleavened bread. It was simply a reminder to watch the permeating, negative, infiltrating effect of the duplicitous thinking of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We're a little bit like that ourselves, aren't we? Don't we want to sign? If I just had a sign, I would know that God hears my prayer, O ye of little faith. If I, if I just had a sign, I would know. In conclusion, are you a sign seeker? Are you a sign seeker? Can I tell you to knock it off? Knock it off. You're looking in the face of the master of the universe as he does all this work. Why do we need another sign? Are you missing the obvious? Are you missing the obvious? Will you take a minute and turn with me to John chapter 20? And and let me remind you of something that this applies to us now as we identify with this desire to see a sign to prove Jesus. Oh, you of little faith. In John chapter 20, verse 30, 31. uh, Just a few weeks ago, I guess it's already been a couple months ago. Janet and I went down to Orange, Virginia. 
You know where Orange is? Not too far from Charlottesville. And there we visited James and Dolly Madison's Montpelier. A huge estate that was purchased by the DuPont family. Hugely built onto some time ago. The historical people got a hold of it and ripped off all of the additions of the DuPonts. And they've restored the home place of our fourth president of the United States, James Madison. It was his boyhood home. His father built it to start with. He added on to it. He married older. He was a bachelor for a while. Then he married Dolly, who evidently was a marvelous person. And they moved there and lived there after the presidency and throughout their adult life. And it was truly his home. There in his study above the entryway is where he holed up for months before the Constitutional, Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. And there he formed the framework of this great experiment of democracy. We really enjoyed walking in there. And we walked in and there's a great hall. When you walk up the front porch, this big brick home, and they've peeled off the layers and they've got it down to, to what it was like. And you walk in this great hall. And in the great hall are pictures and mirrors and statues and busts and rugs and furniture pieces. And the guide lady, as we gathered in there, we're looking around in this big room, said to us, it is exactly the way it is. We're like 98% of the way of having it exactly the way it was when James and Dolly were here. Well, I raised my hand and I said, how do you know? How do you know? You weren't here. You didn't see it. That was 240 years ago, lady. You don't know what this room looked like. You weren't there. You didn't see it. Well, I sort of asked the question, but I didn't say it like that. <laughs> you know what she said? She said, we have letters of people who stayed here for extended periods of time even. And they wrote letters from here to their friends and they described the home. And through those letters that we have, we are able to, to reconstruct almost identically with great confidence that this is what it looked like. Now, can you read with me John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31? Let's pick it up with verse 29. Thomas has just put his hands in Jesus' hands inside and believes. And he says, my Lord and my God, at the end of 28 of John 20. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Was that a good enough sign, Thomas? You got to touch me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And then John said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of of the disciples, which are not written in this book. We don't even have an account. John in another place says that all the books of the world, he doesn't think, could hold. Look at verse 25 of the end of 21. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's how John concluded his, his word. Look at back up now, verse 30, 31 of chapter 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. How do we know? How do we know this was 2,040 years ago? John was there. He wrote it down. We have a very accurate written account of exactly what it was. 
And John wrote his book so that people who weren't there would know that he saw it and he's telling them this is how it was. And ultimately, in the book of John, the capstone sign that he wrote and recorded was the sign of Jonah, the great resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are you a sign seeker? More blessed are those who have not seen and yet they believe. And we're better at looking at the sky than we are at knowing the signs of the time. And that's another thing. The Bible talks about the signs of the times today. And we need to be astute observers of that as well. Most of us know whether the weather's going to be better for fishing or not tomorrow than we do whether the Lord's return is at hand on the signs of the time. Will you stand with me and let's conclude in prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed to just think inside our heads a minute. If Jesus were with you today, would he turn and look at you and say, oh, you of little faith. Maybe you're anxious for something and you need to cast that care upon the Lord today. Or maybe you're a sign seeker and you're a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to Jesus. Stop doubting and believe. You have the sign of Jonah. That's all this crooked and adulterous generation gets. That's a wonderful sign. Father, strengthen our faith, would you, as we go today and enter into another week. Show us how to live. Show us how to to bear the image of Christ in our lives. The flesh is so weak. The world presses in upon us. Satan's schemes are clever. We do want to be just humble, faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Show us how to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.